Views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because we are easy, but because we are hard. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Space Show. Glad to be back on the air with all of you. And I uh, hope a lot of you are listening to hear Marshall from Little o Renfro, Oklahoma. He is our guest today. How did I do on that, Marshall? Did I duplicate it very well? Uh, close enough for government work. <laughs> for Oklahoma work, right? Uh, um, close enough. Welcome back. Um, we are up and running in most of the systems on our website from our glorious hack. Uh, are back and running, but for those of you that heard us talking live with Marshall before the show, that is a glitch, and uh, I was unable to disable doing that like I would have done a week ago, so that that's an item that needs to be repaired. Uh, as you play around with the site, as you listen to archives, as you go back to shows, as you do different things, if you find things that don't work right or you don't think they work right, Please call them to my attention at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Don't put them on the blog. I probably won't see them if you put them on the blog. But just email me and say, I don't think ABC is working right. And we will look into it. And if it's not working right, we'll do our very, very best to uh, fix it. Before I start off with Marshall, um, I will say a couple of short words. Uh, Spencer said that the code that hacked our website was Asian. Now, Spencer should know this because, uh, as you know, he has taught uh, computer and website work in Asia for a number of years. Uh, he lived in Ho Chi Minh City, uh, and got married there, and then as he was about ready to come back to the United States, the pandemic hit, and he could not get back to the United States. So he had been doing our web work from Ho Chi Minh City, which to many of you might remember, it was called at one time Saigon. And uh, during that time, uh, Spencer brought a couple of kitties into the world, but he, he did get them all in, and he's back in Colorado now. So um, we're, we're certainly glad he's back here. But he should recognize malicious code, and he said it looked like variations of, uh, of Asian code. Now, our hosting company told us that the, the attacks were coming from Eastern Europe, but that none of this means anything because it could be spoofed and it could be coming from my neighbor down the street, and we wouldn't know that. But if they're actually using Asian militia code, then Spencer's probably more on the right track on that or not. And, uh, you know, they find vulnerabilities automatically, and, and then they just maliciously screw things up. I, While I don't know for sure, I think... Our hosting service was involved in the hack because their government, government their cover, Jesus Christ, their customer service went from horrible 
to 10,000 times horrible. And that tells me that there were a lot of clients pissed off trying to reach them during the week this went on. Now, they tell me we were the only ones that were hacked, and so I just, honestly, I don't believe that. But if they got in and penetrated weaknesses with the hosting company, which is in motion hosting, then it'd probably be pretty easy to find ports of entry into the website. So I will say a word about security for those of you that care about it. When we started doing business within motion in 2015, we had a password for entering our website. We had a password for the AMP panel, which is part of the control of the website. And we had a password for cPanel. As I found out through this process, there is no longer a password for the website. There is no longer a password for cPanel. This is safe for all their clients. I mean, I'm not singling out the space show. When you go to their login page, it says login through AMP panel. And um, we thought we had a robust password. Obviously, we weren't robust enough, but we will be by the end of today. And once they enter AMP, now they have access to your entire website. Uh, Because cPanel... I went in to change the cPanel password, and there is no cPanel password. So, um, also, InMotion does not use two-step variation uh, verification. So, for those of you that pay credit cards or bills online, you might find that you want to go check into your website, and they say they have to send you a confirming email or a text message or something or a code. They're a pain in the ass, everybody, but do it. That's <laughs> about what, what what I can say. Go go to if if you're offered two step verification or something like that, take it. And the other thing I would tell you is give up your favorite little cozy passwords. <laughs> so we have gone to random generated passwords that are in excess of 20 characters, and there is no possible way to memorize any of that stuff. But uh, you, you know you you can write it down. And you can copy and paste. And if the website won't allow you to copy and paste, you just have to poke in 20 or 22 characters. But it makes a big difference. And um, I'm just sharing you uh, what little I know so far from the School of Hard Knocks. So um, I think our website is okay for now. We are going to be plugging vulnerabilities and changing possibly changing the hosting company, but possibly changing a, a lot of other stuff too because we do have older, out-of-date software and we're looking for ways to migrate that to newer, more evolved software that would have security attached with it. But take your cyber seriously. While all of this was going on, my third medical hack of my medical information since I've lived in Las Vegas was received my eye doctor is a member of so some eye doctor group that has offices in 20 cities here and there. And all of that information got hacked. So now I've been hacked by Medicare. I've been hacked by a hospital in Las Vegas that did an endoscopy on me last year. And now my eye doctor's office has been hacked. So they have all my medical information. They have my Medicare. They have this, that. And it all leads to everything else. Uh, 
So um, my only recourse is that the groups that are doing class action lawsuits don't steal all the goddamn money for their legal firm and allow the victims to get a little something out of it. And um, change your passwords. And be careful what you put on a medical portal uh, because we've not seen the end of it yet. Uh, but so that's all I have to say. But I think we're up and running. If you do find glitches, please do let us know. And uh, we're certainly glad to be back on the air. So uh, the toll-free number with Marshall, if you want to call him, is 866-687-7223. And I'll tell you why he's on the show in just a minute. Um you can email us, of course, as always, at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, the newsletter, all the email stuff, everything that we do normally, it's all on the web. It's all ready to go. Uh, it'll be mailed out at 6 a.m. in the morning West Coast time. So that part seems to be working really, really great. So um, uh, we still have our store that's there. If you're interested in logo wear, go check it out. Pepper listening to the space show. Our archives are all working, at least the ones that we've tested. And I have doubled up and loaded shows to the to the website, and then I've deleted them. And they did load correctly. So uh, that's there. Um, we were not financially prepared for this, so I certainly want to thank those of you who have made extra donations to help us defray the cost of cleaning our files and getting back on air and putting in some effective measures to patch our website and other things like that. We certainly import and uh, uh, appreciate that. And, uh, you know, um, hopefully um, we are a listener-supported show, and, and I guess that means we need listener support to repair attacks and damage. And as I said, we're doing the best we can to tighten everything up but if you do want to support us, and I hope you do, PayPal is still the easiest way. And there's a PayPal button in the upper right corner of our homepage, thespaceshow.com. If you use Zelle, which is really great if you're using an American bank, because there are no commissions with Zelle, and it's instant transfer of funds. But Zelle requires an email address directly to our bank, which is Chase Bank Account. And that email address is david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. Please do not send it to the Dr. Space address. It will never get to where you want it to go. So david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And then if you want to go hard school and old school and, and mail a check, it's made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation. And it goes to our Las Vegas address, which is also on that PayPal button. Again, if it's not working, if you have any problems or questions, email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com, which, by the way, is a Microsoft Office 365 account. It is totally separate from our website and all of this garbage. And uh, while I'm not the biggest fan of Microsoft, I will tell you that they mean really, really good security. And when something happens, they have got teams that they deploy to fixing it, regardless of holiday, day or night. And, um, you know, I can afford that service because they they offer service to small businesses at Microsoft. But normally, 
uh, you'd have to be a, a pretty big thing to get that kind of cyber protection. So I really appreciate being an Office 365 customer. And many, many times all my email has gone out from everything. And Office 365 is still working or it gets reconnected right away. So uh, I wish they paid me to advertise for them. I would do it. But um, uh, that email address uh, was valid all through the hack while other stuff was down. So uh, just a little word about that. And, and again, my appreciation for having the good sense to follow my advisors years and years ago to open up an Office 365 account. So um, Marshall, well, let me do a couple of other things. Uh, in addition to individual fundraising, because we are listener-supported, we do have our sponsors. All of our sponsors have renewed, okay, even though a couple of them are slow pay. I guess that's to be expected. Uh, but um, And we, we've gotten a couple of new ones. Uh, Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix in Luxembourg, Helix Space, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox Corporation, Dr. Ben Arroyo, the space show, John Jossie's fabulous uh, blog, Space Progress Now, and then a couple of others that I don't yet have the promo messages for. And uh, being a sponsor for the space show is usually a calendar year deal, $500 a year. That's what our sponsorships cost. And you get the banner ad. You can change it whenever you want. And you get the promo messages on the shorter format and the bigger promo messages on the longer format show. And we hope some of you will also decide to become a sponsor. And if you are interested, and again, it's $500 a year, email me at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. So Marshall said he'd be with us as long as he could. I'm not sure I know what that means. But, but I think that means we're at least the variable format. I mean, he's getting up there to be an old farmer. So, he, you know, he may, <laughs> he gets up at 5 and 4 in the morning to run the tractor. So he may conk out at us. We'll, we'll see. Um, or he may want to go out and try to build another another part to his airplane, which he is It's turning into the Winchester Mystery Airplane because <laughs> it, it hasn't flown yet. We'll get an airplane update from Marshall. But why is Marshall on the show? So, aside from the fact that he has been one of my oldest known space show friends in person, because I know a lot of you, but I don't know all of you in person, Marshall may have been one of the first five or ten people ever in the history of the space show that I met in person. And I met him either at a space conference in Phoenix or a Mars Society gig. I don't remember which one it was, but Marshall Mark probably remembers. And uh, we, we have been friends ever since. And uh, he is our most prolific caller to the space show. So I know many of you call all the time. And, in fact, we hear from callers over and over and over again, and we'd love to hear from new callers. But when it's really slow out, and the snow is coming down, and the rain is drowning out the connection, and everybody's yawning, the phone call will ring. One phone call for the whole damn show. Hi, this is little old Marshall from Renfro. (laughs) And there he is. 
And the thing about Renfro Marshall is he is a legitimate, very well-trained engineer. He went to Oklahoma State University, which is a, a good school. And he is smart. And he does due diligence. And he's creative in his thinking. And he asks very, very good questions. So it's it's not just that he's an Okie calling from Muskogee to, to ask us what color is the is the wheat today. He he knows what he's talking about. So I asked Marshall to to come on the show and uh, let's talk real space with Marshall because the guy's an interesting guy. He does drive a tractor for real, and uh, he is a farmer for real. He almost single-handedly introduced space agriculture and food to the show before anybody else was doing it. And um, so Marshall's back, and I I thought he'd just make a really fine guest. Plus, it would be fun to honor Marshall for being the most frequent, prolific caller to our program. So that's why Marshall is here with us. Anything goes, any questions go. And uh, let's see what he what he really knows and what some of his favorites are about um, space and engineering and getting off this planet and the things that we talk about. Uh, so, Marshall, from the space perspective that you have, which may be different than all of us because of your location and the kinds of things you do, what's happening in space from your your from your vantage point? Well, uh, basically, uh, I'm kind of a, as you said, I'm a smart guy. Gee, thank you for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I look on the Internet and listen to the space show, and uh, every once in a while somebody says something. I'll take a specific one. October 3rd, Dr. Brandenburg uh, was talking about uh, interstellar objects hitting the Earth, and that kind of thing sends me off searching through the Internet, and all of a sudden I'm kind of going, wow, this is interesting because I found a paper that basically said, uh, and I never took Hawaiian, so Uma Muamua came through, and this guy's paper says there should be about seven of them coming within the Earth's orbit per year. It's just that we're just now being able to find them, which brings up all sorts of things about, uh, uh, you know, space objects hitting the Earth. Oh, gee, how about that one that killed off the dinosaurs? It had an unusual uh, amount of iridium, and therefore we could see the layer, and uh, we learned a whole bunch about uh, Earth's history and uh, evolution simply because uh, I listened to the space show. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and you can take yourself off in unusual thought trips just by uh, the type of people you interview on the space show. Listeners, Marshall gave me three pages of talking points. You know what else he learned about listening to the space show? I'm going to make him tell us what he learned. Are you ready for this? Okay, go for it. Okay. What monster did you learn about, Marshall? Oh, well, um, 
John from Fort Worth uh, has this thing about the UFOs and the uh, so on, and uh, I basically took off and I went, wait a minute, if I was, uh, I used Telosians because in the Star Trek, um, um, what do they call that, the first, you know, the pilot, they used Telosians. Right. But if I was a Telosian, uh, would I come to Earth? And the answer kind of came to me is, not really. Uh, I'd look to go someplace where there's lots of resources. I'd go to the uh, galactic arms of the galaxy because that's where all the resources are. I wouldn't come to an out-of-the-way place like our solar system. And uh, then we kind of come in there and go, yeah, the space aliens story is right along the same lines as the Loch Ness Monster. And you sit there and you go, wait a minute, nobody's ever gotten any hard evidence on the existence of the Loch Ness Monster, but the story's been around for, what, 300 years? And it's basically because there's money in it. Just like Star Trek, you know, they basically make space aliens and uh, sell us a nice story. We also have spook stories, you know, ghosts, etc., etc. So I'm very skeptical about space aliens, even though there's a lot of people that really, really, you know, want to uh, go out to New Mexico and, and search for evidence of space aliens. So, yeah, I'm not too big on it. Um, Todd in San Diego. Okay. Says, uh, Marshall, I gotta check in on a on a few a few th- things for you to to see what your kind of uh, reasoning really is. So, number one, you have mentioned Loch Ness monster. Are you skeptical? Oh. Uh, uh, I read a paper about uh, a year and a half ago that basically said there's been about 300 sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, and uh, all but one of them has been pretty well explained. Of course, uh, there's so much tourism dollars in it, nobody cares. So, uh, no, I don't think there's a Loch Ness Monster uh, for something the size that they talk about. There has to be a major food source for them, and um, no monster lives 300 years, so where's the breeding stock? Uh, you get, you know, uh, the physics uh, doesn't work. So, nope, don't really believe in Loch Ness Monster. Uh, I'd need to have some really hard evidence before I swallow that. I'd buy a T-shirt if I was there. So, uh, well, uh, T-shirts, you know, uh, that's just part of economics, and uh, it's for fun, but it's not serious. Uh, he also says, uh, aside from the Loch Ness Monster, which you may not believe, many people don't believe that we really are going to live off of Earth in space farms, space factories, space anything on the moon, Mars, or even in the O'Neillian wheels that get talked about 
because of all the different issues surrounding human factors in space that we don't seem to make a lot of progress in getting solutions to other than making progress in talking about them more and more often. How do you see people finally being able to live off space? I'm not talking about live for a month or two or a year or two and then come back. Permanently living in space settlements, in space, on a planetary surface, or an O'Neillian station. Do you think this is really where humans are going to end up? Well, uh, I like, uh, I'll back up. I'm glad you brought in O'Neillian space stations because I read the High Frontier about, uh, 1978, 1979. I actually went to a couple of the L5 meetings in Houston and, uh, uh, as I, as you read the book, there's a few huge assumptions that O'Neill makes. One, right off the bat, is he basically assumed the space shuttle was going to make, uh, safe, reliable, and cost-effective access to space. Well, whoops, that didn't quite work out. And uh, we come in there, and we do have Falcon 9 now. Uh, last I saw, I think it had uh, 303 launches, successful launches. That's cost-effective, and it has reliability. Uh, but at, let's see, what is it? I, two point, uh, uh, at 22.8 tons per launch, I think it's a little lacking on the launch capacity, which means uh, Starship is it. And if Elon can pull off uh, Starship and uh, get it running, and Elon, the, the original paper basically said it was going to be 100 tons, and uh, then they started doing the math, and they started upping it to 150 tons to low-Earth orbit, and for the last year, Elon has been quoting 200 tons to low-Earth orbit. And uh, with that kind of capacity, I do think we can make space stations that has the artificial gravity, and uh, we can do space farming and uh, pretty well feed everybody that's in space via uh, low-Earth or equatorial orbit space stations, and we have to do that to move out into deep space and to make the deep space ports. Uh, but taking a step back, we did Biosphere 2 in Oracle, uh, Arizona, and uh, it was kind of a success. Now, of course, the people who put it together didn't have CAD systems. They basically, uh, it's called swag, stupid wild ass guess. They swagged a prototype and they had eight people live in the biosphere for two years. That's success. Especially considering the prototype was basically nothing but an intelligent guess. Now with today's CAD systems, better understanding and uh, better funding, I think we can make ground-based 
biospheres that uh, can work. And uh, once we have those worked out, then we can go to low Earth equatorial orbit, prove out uh, all the systems, literally in space, and then we have the option of cutting the speed down. So we can lower gravity and find out the full gravity prescription, which is another thing O'Neill totally uh, skipped over, was artificial gravity. He just assumed it was going to be 1G and everything was going to be great. Uh, another assumption is that the space farming was going to be simple. Well, uh, farming is a lot more complicated than most people think. And uh, if you go to a biosphere farming, uh, it really gets tricky. And uh, new technology of the last few years is going to make it a lot simpler, a lot better, make the structures stronger. So, yeah, I do believe that we are eventually going to move out into deep space. Uh, I would like to say the Goldilocks zone around the sun, and eventually there will probably be, be tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, individual little space stations out there with anything from 100 to maybe a million people, uh, you know, kind of like all over this country. There's the big cities, and then there's the little towns, and they kind of work back and forth. Uh, Marshall, you uh, have your first caller. Somebody uh, from one of those orbiting stations maybe wants to talk to you. Maybe Nessie wants to talk to you. Um, <laughs> welcome to the show, caller. Who are you? Where are you? Thank you for your call today. Hi, David and Marshall. This is John in Fremont, California. Okay. Go for it. Uh, good to have you back on the air. Um, thank you, and thank you for your help. Show. All right. Thank you for and, your help oh, and support. I really appreciate it, John. Well, it's such a valuable resource. We can't we can't let that happen. So uh, we got to keep it going, uh, Marshall. Thanks, thanks for coming on. And uh, I, I was wondering if you had seen uh, JAXA's uh, recent report on lunar farming. They uh, did a, a study that came out late last year in November, and it's a report from their lunar farming concept study group, a very long report, very detailed, and um, I, I, I think uh, it, it advances the, the concept of um, uh, farming on the moon as well as um, biospheres in space. So you might uh, be interested in that. I, uh, I recently um, did a blog post on it, so I'll link it to this show. But did you did you hear about the study? Uh, yes, I heard about the study, but I hadn't seen it yet. And uh, uh, in the past, uh, there have been uh, uh, places that uh, took the uh, simulated uh, lunar soil that uh, is manufactured in the United States so that they can practice with it and so on like that. And uh, somebody in the U 
I think it was in Poland, if I remember correctly, uh, basically took some of that uh, lunar regolith, simulated lunar regolith, and uh, tried growing plants in it. And uh, the plants pretty well grew. Uh, then they came in there and uh, put the lunar regulus into uh, uh, basically a mixer with uh, some uh, steel balls. And that took off most of the sharp edges and uh, turned it into uh, rather uh, high-quality uh, soil that grew plants rather well. So uh, are we going to get uh, launched, literally dirt from the ground, uh, to uh, populate our lower Earth orbit biospheres? Uh, I kind of uh, think the first two or three is a yes, but after that, I think, uh, just like O'Neill referenced, I think we'll be using lunar materials sending it into space and bringing it down and and uh, making it into good soil. Uh, after all, volcanic uh, soils are known for being very good soils for uh, growing things. And uh, basically all they need is nitrogen and water. And uh, things grow pretty good. So I'm very optimistic about uh, uh producing soil in space from lunar materials so that it doesn't we don't literally have to launch it to space. Yeah, that's uh that's the key. And uh th this uh study was was interesting. They they uh, the working group was split up into four groups. One was on cultivation um which uh, looked at environmental controls, light levels. Uh, they're assuming LEDs um, and and uh, hydroponic uh, systems, and so they're looking at irrigation and atmospheric conditions tailored for for each crop type. And then uh, another group was looking at unmanned technology, uh, robotic maintenance of the the plant factory. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, autonomous monitoring and sowing and cultivating and harvesting. And then they had a recycling group looking at um, soil um, improvement and reuse of um, limited resources, um, inedible scraps, waste material, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then finally they had an overall system subgroup that, that looked at the, the farm as a whole, taking into account each each plant species. And they, they split the, uh, the study up into two groups. One was a smaller, near-term, six-person crew. And then, uh, you know, what it would take, what, what sort of farm, uh, would, would be required to support, um, a short-term crew. And then they looked at a, a much larger, hundred-person colony, um, you know, uh, assuming that, uh, the, the, the farm would be scalable to that size. Um, yeah. One one thing that they they uh, they looked at, which I, I'm wondering if you've heard of this, they they have a um, a metric that they use to evaluate their different designs, and the metric is called the equivalent systems math, um, which is a mathematical formula 
which I'm sure you you would be very interested in, uh, that that is composed of variables of the mass of the system, the volume, the power needed uh, to uh, support it, the cooling systems, and then uh, how how long the crew would would be there, crew working hours. And apparently, this is a metric that that NASA uses for all sorts of systems uh, to uh, determine um, what is the most efficient system from a mass perspective. And when they when they did this calculation for for their different designs, uh, they were able to show that um, over a ten year period, their optimized design for a lunar farm would not have to be replenished with food from Earth. When building materials, water and oxygen were supplemented from sources on the moon. So uh, they're they're using ISRU um, and and optimizing the system. Uh, so that, uh, and I, I think they, you're not going to have a 100% closed system, but they were able to um, make it last for a long time without uh, supplies from Earth. So it's a pretty interesting study, and I will uh, link it to the blog and uh, be interesting to get your, your, your take on it, Marshall, and uh, uh, my take we'll go from there. immediately is the, one of the key things that the, uh, Anytime you talk the moon, you're going to have to solve the 1-6-G problem, which is basically the gravity issue. Uh, I'm quite sure that we can probably work just fine with 1-G. Now, what happens when you drop to uh, 1-half-G? Uh, some plants will probably make it. Some plants won't. Uh, and... It isn't until you get a biosphere literally in low Earth orbit and you spin the space station to a half G are you going to find out. And uh, that implies that, yeah, the uh, 1-6-G is, you know, the golden uh, number for us right now because if we can get a biosphere that uh, – doesn't need any kind of resupply for two, three, four years. Well, we can uh, use AJ, uh, who was talking about thorium reactors. I specifically asked what a 100-ton thorium reactor could produce. Well, he basically said 27 megawatts. Well, 27 megawatts, and assuming we have a 1,6-G biosphere, Hey, we just go to the moon, find us a nice lava tube, move in, set up uh, a base, and uh, hey, we're there for four or five years independent of the Earth. And with a little research, I assume we're going to have genetically modified organisms, uh, you know, plants and animals that are specifically uh, selected for that gravity level. Uh, I think we can do it, but i got to figure it's going to be 25, 30 years before we get there. Yep, uh, and uh, these are all really good points. Um, I, uh, are you going to ISPC? Um, I generally don't travel too much, uh, but uh, there is uh, different things that I go to uh, when it's convenient for me. And 
uh, I haven't got any plans at present. Okay. Well, Joe Carroll, as as I'm sure you you know, and the the spatial audience knows, is is talking about the gravity prescription and and uh, has a suggestion for a variable gravity facility to study um, different gravity levels in low Earth orbit. So he's going to be talking. And then, you know, you raised the question of 1,6-G. I mean, plants might be able to, to survive, but can, can people have children in 1,6-G? And that's, that's one of the focus of, of my talk. Um, I'm going to be looking at the gravity prescription specifically for reproduction and how that may change the strategy, uh, for space settlement. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, what unfolds, but uh, that's a, a key question that we have to answer. Yeah, oh, exactly. Now, uh, in preparation for doing the show, uh, I took the wife up to Walmart in Wichita, which meant she had to listen to me for a whole hour, and uh, <laughs> and she came back with a absolute gem of stump the chump. She asked, well, yeah, women probably uh, can be talked into going to space and having children. Uh, but first of all, you have to make it nice enough that they want to go. And, uh, of yeah. course, uh, being a rock-solid, uh, super macho uh, software engineer, uh, I am totally unqualified to state, oh, gee, what are the characteristics of a space station that women between uh, in reproductive age 18 to 35 are going to say, yes, I'd like to go to space and have a few children. And then my wife tossed in, what are you going to do about disposable diapers? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, uh, 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 all I could think of is, they weren't required to keep Neanderthal children happy. Oh, dear. Well, uh, we need someone to start working on that. I had not thought about disposable diapers. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go do some research now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of the space show. Uh, of course, the key thing is you, we have to start building biospheres here on Earth to test them out get them basically functioning so we know how to build them, and then we have to figure out how to launch them. And, gee, uh, I think SpaceX is probably, uh, with Starship, uh, going to be able to uh, produce, uh, handle the payloads required. So we've got a lot of work to do in the space farming, uh, space living simulation systems that are going to have to be in place so that we can build our first low-Earth orbit biospheres. And uh, then uh, once we get to the low-Earth orbits, we can figure out how to handle the radiation problem and move into deep space. I presume the first, I call them biosphere Zs, uh, are going to be at... Lagrange 1, Lagrange 2 orbit, uh, Lagrange 3, and 
uh, Lagrange 4 and Lagrange 5. Uh, and uh, they'll sit out there and prove that uh, we can live out in deep space. And once they're successful, then we're going to have people building, what would you call it, space mansions uh, to uh, live out in space, their own little communities. And know. they'll stay in orbit. They'll have their specialty uh, manufacturing and specialty uh, e economic factors, and uh, they'll probably live out there quite happily. Well, but it may be 200 years before that happens. Well, it may be 200 years, but what does that do for you and um, your critical thinking process for when are we going to have space property rights? Oh, uh, yeah, space property rights. Uh, isn't that going to be interesting? Uh, well, first of all, uh, why do we have property rights in the first place? Well, back about uh, 10,000 years ago, uh, a guy started growing uh, wheat, barley, rice. You know, this is my territory. You keep out. That's the basis of property rights. And uh, basically, once uh, people get into space, they're going to say, this is my territory, you keep out. And, yeah, I figure there's going to be some, uh, 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 some kind of little wars, little spats. And uh, no matter how much the uh, current space lawyers and uh, space architects are going to say, we'll do it this way, we'll do it that way, the law is this, the law is that. Uh, once the people really get out into space and there's a reasonable population of spacefaring people, uh, they're going to make up their own rules. But you think to have this kind of settlement like you've been talking about for 30 or 40 minutes, property rights will someday exist. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. Um, it's kind of like, how do you put a claim on property rights for uh, L1? Well, nobody's been there. Nobody's done this. Um, I kind of see uh, the U.S. Space Force eventually having uh, their first um, – uh, lunar Starbase at L1 uh, because it automatically has communication to the Earth. And it's a key strategic point, and uh, you also come in there and go, well, if there's a problem, uh, it's one of the more easy and obvious places to uh, quote-unquote or uh, retreat back to the fort type thing. Uh, it's it's the logical place for. Them. Well, the first the first uh, step is the Artemis Accord, and um, that that uh, is starting to shape policy. And uh, the the idea is to be able to use resources uh, without necessarily claiming uh, a property right. And so, if we can use resources of the asteroids and and the moon to build these um, settlements, um, I think that will go a long way towards solving that problem. But, uh, yeah, we, we need the lawyers involved, and, and um, 
you know, we have other base show contributors that can handle that. Uh, Laura Montgomery and yeah, and like a listener, and and so that's well in hand by other people. You know, the the guys went out and prospect and made their mining claims, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and the government basically said, yeah, okay, that's your mining claim. Well, one of the problems with the space treaty and uh, even the Artemis Accords, they don't say what a mining claim is. How big is it? Uh, if I find a rich vein of uh, gold, silver, uh, and even more important, water, uh, you know, how big's my claim? Well, I can't claim the whole moon, uh, but, you know, maybe you can claim uh, uh, basically a square mile, a half a square mile, a quarter of a square mile. Uh, you know, what is the size of a mining claim? And as far as I know, nobody's answered that question. Well, you're not supposed, oh, good to, stuff. Claim, not supposed to claim any of them. <laughs> yeah, which means uh, uh, we find a great source of uh, lithium, and the uh, Chinese can land right on top of it and take it away from you. John, let me see if somebody else wants to call, okay? Okay, um, welcome back, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Oh, listeners, while John is still on the phone, a reminder that uh, we canceled two shows. One was uh, Courtney Scott, and he's coming back on in April. Uh, but Zimmerman, with his typical three- or four-month Tuesday report, is coming back. And as you know, I paid great tribute to Bob because he was so helpful uh, during the thing. But Bob has a special show on Monday evening. We're, uh, we're redoing Bob's Miss show from last Tuesday, this Monday. So uh, you don't want to miss it. Lots of stuff has been happening in space. And then uh, Dr. Zubrin is Tuesday. And Melody Yashar, Yashar is coming back on Friday. And then this amazing high school girl that called me out of the blue to help her with a high school college project. She's in a high school uh, that's also doing college work. Here in Vegas. And she, um, I asked her to come on the show. And Michael Listener helped her a little bit. I connected her to him. And I answered all of her questions. And she's really bright. And she knows some about commercial space. She wants to be in space finance and be a banker. So she's going to start out by uh, by uh, doing a space show this coming Sunday. So you definitely want to hear uh, Jennifer. Uh, let's see who's calling. Good afternoon, callers. Welcome to the space show. Who are you? Where are you? And thank you for calling. Hi, this is Doug from Redwood, California. Hi, Doug. Uh, you're on with uh, Marshall from Little Renfro. <laughs> Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, go ahead. Hey, Marshall. Hey, uh, are, are, are you guys aware of non-disposable diapers, like reusable diapers? Uh, I, I wore them for three months after prostate surgery, but are we getting a little bit too personal now? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, the modern, the modern washable diaper is, is sort of uh, made out of two materials. There's the material that touches the skin and, and, and the outside. 
uh, and then there's an absorbent material, and you're able to uh, put the absorbent material in a pouch. But both of them are washable. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like there's there are no solutions here. Um, so I don't think it's a rhetorical question about what are you going to be doing about disposable diapers. We'll we'll have to wash, uh, you know, go with the washable diapers. Yeah, well. Uh, as I said, it's not one of my expertise, you know, it's like, uh, of course my wife had five children, so she's an absolute expert on this stuff, uh, and I have to concede quickly to her, uh, comments because she's usually right. Uh, the other thing is, one of the reasons we have to have the biospheres on the ground with the, uh, you know, uh, appropriately manned and appropriately simulating living in space, obviously 1G, is to find oddball problems like disposable diapers. Uh, what about uh, medicines, you know? Uh, personally, I have a lot of allergy problems. I sneeze a lot. I take antihistamines, decongestants. Well, wait a minute. Are you going to be making those in the biosphere? Uh, no. Yeah. On the other hand, one of the things that will be excluded from the biosphere is, oh, yeah, ragweed, mosquitoes, uh, right. blowing dust storms uh, aren't going to happen in the biosphere. So we will find out that, oh, yeah, maybe we don't need a lot of allergy medicines. And... Uh, by having an appropriate uh, environment, uh, any reasonably healthy person is going to uh, work quite well. Then there's also the problem of what do you do for exercise? Well, if it's the one-acre uh, biosphere, which I kind of uh, think about a lot, uh, there's not that much room. Well, it's kind of like living in a mall. You know, one of these little uh, malls that's uh, about one acre in size, and, you know, you kind of walk around between the stores and so on like that. You have basically a one-acre garden that you're growing all your food on. You're going to have your little chicken ranch producing chicken eggs. You're going to have uh, – I like using mealworms as uh, – uh, an animal that eats just about anything and uh, is edible themselves. And, you know, you take the scraps from A, feed it to the mealworms, and hand it off to the chickens, hand it off to the goats, and um, they keep, they are fed, and in turn they produce the food. Of course, chickens poop, goats poop, even mealworms poop. Well, you have to have the sewer system to collect it all, treat it all, and then turn it back into fertilizer that's put on the farm to make the food. Uh, and, you know, everything has to circulate, but there's oddball little things that, well, even in Biosphere 2, they had concrete that was sucking up the oxygen. And they got into a low oxygen situation. Well, we have to make those experiments to find out what they are and what the fixes are. And basically, we should have started years ago, but we haven't.
Mark, Doug wants to talk, Marshall, so let him. Okay, let him go ahead. Yeah, um, you know, Marshall, I think uh, I, I've mentioned this so many times on the, on the space show, and I, I'm, I guess I'm just going to try to drive it home. Marshall, do you make a distinction between um, biospheres and greenhouses, or in your mind, are, are those one and the same thing? Uh, 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 distant cousins sounds about right. Uh, greenhouses okay. basically so kept the warmth in, and yeah, so, people moved in and out so, dirt, and they basically produced uh, high-value crops. Now, greenhouses so, uh, can be uh, used to produce, you know, flowers and so on. That's a high-value crop. It's just that I think in a space environment, you know, pretty flowers is probably not too high on the the uh, we-need list, but that doesn't Marshall. mean that uh, they aren't going to be uh, produced there. Uh, as I said, we need to have ground-based so that we know what we're doing. Then we move up to low-orbital biospheres and uh, learn more there. And then Marshall. once we really know what we're doing, we oh, can move on, into uh, deep space. Marshall, you got to start pausing and letting Doug get into the conversation, okay? Okay. Be, take a breath every once in a while. Go for it, Doug. Yeah, Marshall, uh, let me let me just speak a little bit here. There there is a fundamental difference between greenhouses and biospheres. Biosphere is all about ecology. It's about the relationship between species. Okay, that gets very complex, very difficult. I think biosphere too was a classic example of just how difficult it is to try to, you know, get all the relationships between uh, the species. But greenhouses, you don't really need those relationships. You can you can have a monoculture. You can just grow tomatoes in a greenhouse. I mean, we this is the hot house tomatoes, you know. And mm -hmm. so I think when it comes to the initial production of food uh, in permanent bases on the moon and Mars, I don't think we're going to go the greenhouse, uh, uh, the biosphere approach. We're going to use the greenhouse approach. We're just going to keep it simple. We're just going to grow the food uh, that we need and not have to worry about all of these ecological relationships between species. Now, I do agree that we need to have a new type of analog base uh, on Earth uh, where we can test these things out and work out the kinks. I do agree with you on that. But I think it'd be a it'd be a terrible waste of time and money uh, to try to create a biosphere three and try to do it right the next time. Rather, what we need to do is we just need to focus on a greenhouse and just figure out how to grow the food um, that the the initial permanent crew is going to need. Um, and then um, it is true that you know there might be some differences in one six gravity. But we have grown plants on ISS and zero-G with success. Um, and so I think that it's probably going to be a, a more matter of uh, the production rates rather than whether we can grow these things or not. Uh, I kind of agree. As, uh, one of the things that I see in biospheres is we have to have them for no other reason than we have a totally new set of tools. Uh, you aren't going to take a Gleaner S77 and go uh, harvest your wheat crop. Uh, 
the thing's got a 40-foot wide header on it. You can't hardly turn it around in one acre. On the other hand, you're going to be talking about a little system, and because the weather's perfect, you dry out the land, you, you know, it can take and run robotically probably for 48 hours and harvest to one acre, and everybody's happy. Uh, so the tools are extremely critical. Now, a greenhouse, greenhouses generally are open environment. I can't see an open environment on the moon or an open environment on Mars. So you're talking about some kind of sealed uh, atmosphere because Marshall? plants need the atmosphere. Marshall, um, yeah. are you aware of the prototype lunar greenhouse at the University of Arizona, Tucson? It's, it's sealed. Are you aware of, of that work that they have done? Mm, not really. Uh, uh, I'm very familiar with the Biosphere 2, uh, which basically right now is being used as a greenhouse. Well, n not really. I mean, not no. It's, it's more of a research looking at uh, yeah. relation species and erosion and stuff like that. So it's, it's not really being used as a greenhouse. But um, I'm going to um, add your your reading list, uh, adding to what, uh, what John uh, suggested. I'd also like you to, to do some re research on the prototype lunar greenhouse at University of Arizona, Tucson. That's one thing. And second of all is go to uh, my website, developspace.info. Uh, the Space Development Network, we've had a uh, agriculture working group, and we've developed a fairly extensive agriculture plan. Uh, that is on our website. It should be fairly easy to find. Um, so if you could do those two things, I, I think it would be helpful. And finally, let me conclude. I, I'd just like to encourage us in the space advocacy world to, to try to torpedo talk about biosphere as though they're necessary to, to settlement. Um, I, I think they are great for if we actually want to create a biosphere, but I think our focus initially needs to be on greenhouses. That's my appeal is let's just drop this, this biosphere discussion. It's, it's not necessary. Thank you. Mm. Uh, I would have to point out that uh, you have a good point there. Even uh, Gerard O'Neill basically talked about separate modules for the farming which I could see would be your greenhouse concept. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you. Thank, you. thank you, Doug. Uh, listeners, there's still time if you want to call and, and talk to Marshall. Uh, we're at area code, uh, what is it, 866-687-7223. You can also use email if you prefer. Dr. Space at the space show.com. The line is available. Uh, so, uh, Marshall, let me, let me move us off of this because you, you did send me three pages of Marshall's talking points. Okay. <laughs> yes. So let me give the listeners a little bit, uh, of a, of additional take on, I'm looking for the damn list. It was here just a minute ago. Um, uh, of a different take of what uh, Marshall's versatility is 
in uh, in terms of space. Okay. So, um, Marshall, you commented. Well, you you had a lot on um, smelting minerals out of lunar rock, saying it should be very very easy. So, what's the value? The purpose? Why would you single out smeltering minerals out of lunar rock? Well, it was one of the assumptions that Gerard O'Neill had in High Frontier, and that was uh, basically uh, gathering up lunar regolith, uh, putting it in a railgun system, and firing it into space and having a space station out there to catch it. And then he kind of loosely uh, said uh, there would be space manufacturing uh, on the big space stations that would uh, produce uh, the resources to turn around and make more space stations. And uh, that implies that you have to have uh, a system for separating out the iron and the aluminum and the oxygen and the titanium from the lunar regolith, uh, which, hmm, uh, we can do on Earth, but uh, if you look at the systems, they're very 1G oriented. Uh, we heat them up to very high temperatures, and then we use gravity to sink most of it down and most of it up. And to get, you know, really pure copper, we use electricities and cathodes and anodes to basically make copper plates that are 99.9% copper. And we do the same thing for silver and, and uh, gold, etc., etc. So we have to come in there, and if we are building 1G space stations, I think it's probably reasonably easy but if you end up at a half-G space station, uh, gee, we're going to have to re-engineer all the smelting. We also have to come in there and consider, okay, uh, what kind of uh, material is coming in? What's waste? Well, generally silicon. Uh, Gerard O'Neill basically said in his book several times that he expected space-based solar power to pay for everything. Uh, hmm, that's an interesting concept, and yes, it means we need to get a lot of silicon for solar panels off the moon, and we have to manufacture uh, solar panels. Well, gee, that's fun. Uh, which type of solar panels? The technology for uh, laying down, you know, the, the uh, microprocessor fabrication and so on is uh, based on uh, gas. Uh, you you uh, gasify uh, different materials and then make basically molecule-level layers and... Uh, so on like that. Well, that equipment is not light. Uh, you're going to manufacture it in space, make the silicon wafer factory in space, or do you build it and launch it from Earth? And uh, I assume you're going to be running it at 1G, but uh, who knows? I mean, 
that's another big, huge area that uh, we're, was, there's a lot of people making the assumption that we're going to be able to do that quickly and easily. And I don't think it will be. Um, <clears throat> what would have to change to make that quickly be able to be here quickly and easy? Uh, well, first of all, I think we have to come in there and uh, set a national goal of getting to space, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Elon Musk and Starship is the big key. Uh, and right now, Elon doesn't have any real interest in doing anything but getting Starship working. Once Starship gets up there and we're starting to talk about uh, space stations, uh, there are people who are going to say, well, uh, you did your Ph.D. on uh, the space tourism. Well, gee, a really good biosphere is probably going to be just as interesting and probably a lot cheaper than uh, coming in and uh, making a space hotel. Uh, I think that a biosphere with, you know, would be much more interesting seeing what life is going to be, and people can kind of go, hey, a space hotel? You know, how big big city is that? But if you come in there and have farming and so on like that, and they realize, hey, you could literally move there and stay there, that's a totally, you know, that's moving from tourism to uh, lifetime resorts, you know, people moving to like Vale, you know, that's where the new uh, cool place to live would be. And, you know, there's a, a change over there in the way people think. You have an email from Laney, L-A-N-E-Y, in Boston. And uh, she says, hey, Marshall, what is your common sense farmer's almanac space crystal ball tell you about society and politics and how much of the space development and living in space that all of us want will actually be permitted? Well, that's one of the hmm, – let's try this general idea of explanation because there's many ways of looking at it. But I like to think of the uh, United States after the Civil War. They really didn't know what to do with the professional army. You know, most people just went home, but they had a professional army, so they put them out on the Old West in the uh, fort system. Yeah, fort Cheyenne, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh Fort, Fort uh, Apache, all of them. Yeah, yeah Fort Supply I, up in, uh, near the Oklahoma Panhole. Uh, yeah, and, you know, yeah, uh, and it culminated in the Indian Wars and so on like that. How did the Army manage those forts and make sure that the soldiers stayed there? Well, first, they paid the soldiers. Second, they supplied the soldiers with uh, regular food. They didn't have them go out and hunt. And, you know, hunt and gather like the Indians. They uh, supplied them with horses and so on. The army was dependent on 
the different forts were dependent on the army supplying them. And as long as you have the bureaucracy supplying these individuals, they, you know, stayed in compliance and they did the job that the uh, bureaucrats of the army wanted done. Well, and the real space environment, once people, the farmers move out there and start farming and uh, living in space, uh, th- those bureaucratic controls don't work anymore because, oh, they don't need any supplies. Uh, they can live independently, maybe for 20 or 30 years. Wow, uh, that is a major change. And once that change from the military fort system into, uh, in, in, uh, like Fort Sill, you know, Lawton, Oklahoma, uh-huh. uh, you have Fort Supply, which basically is this town called Fort Supply, uh, <laughs> like Cheyenne, Wyoming. Right. Uh, you know, it becomes a city, and the uh, methodology of control moved from the military to the individual cities, and the city governments ran things. That's the kind of transition that will happen. And uh, how, how will it be done? Well, but or how long is it going to take to be done? And, and can oh. can impediments be put up before that kind of independence exists? that hinder that independence from coming on? Yeah, well, well, uh, the uh, Japanese made the uh, 1G system for testing uh, gravity, artificial gravity on the International Space Station. Yeah. Uh, as you pointed out, the Challenger accident basically left it on the ground, and nobody made it higher enough priority to get it into space. Well, that kind of sounds like to me that the bureaucrats went, wait a minute, we don't want this because it, you know, loosens our control on the space station. So, nope, nope, uh, that's, you know, the bureaucrats are going to make sure that they keep as much control as they can for as long as they can. In the long run, though, individual people will eventually go their independent ways and, uh, I think space colonization will be done by a lot of independent groups. Okay. okay. And they're going to have totally different views of how to do things. So let me And uh, there's a lot of ways to succeed, so they will. Let me give you a reality check, okay? Because you mm-hmm. you are in a in an industry that is really bureaucratic farming, ranching. Oh, Okay. Uh, Has it gotten easier and better as you've gotten better at your job? Is it clamping down on your butt more and more? Is it restricting you more and more as you develop more and more technology that could give you freedom? Why would space be any different than the bureaucracy you're facing in 2024 in agriculture, in farming, in ranching? <laughs> Uh, you got me. Oh, a stab in the heart. Yes. Uh, basically, the uh, federal government has uh, uh, the Bureau of Land Management, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, yes, 
more and more and more paperwork. Uh, but uh, in fact, my two brother-in-laws that do most ninety uh, percent of the farming, uh, they they are probably spending one third of their time doing paperwork. And I will guarantee you, paperwork doesn't produce one bushel of wheat. Paperwork doesn't do this, doesn't do that. Uh, the chemicals that they have to uh, use to, uh, you know, keep down the weeds and the uh-huh. bugs and so on like that, you have to have a chemical license. And to a certain degree, yeah, some of this stuff is quite toxic. It does need to be controlled. You don't want to have it in the hands of idiots. Uh, but that means that uh, you have a bunch of bureaucrats who are keeping track of everybody. You've got to go in every two years and take a test to keep your chemical license. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if somebody wants to come out here and look around and figure out what they want, uh, it's not hard to steal it. And, you know, it ends up uncontrolled. Well, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Send out the army to guard everything? Well, they don't because not enough of it gets stolen to do anything. But, oh yeah, uh, the bureaucracy is there and will keep there. But that doesn't keep the, uh, what was that one group? I think it's called the Mennonites. Uh huh. That, that basically are still farming like it was 1800. And, uh, they basically, uh, have to do kind of minimum things like, you know, uh, have to have, uh, uh, a battery with, uh, taillights on their horse and buggies, which is kind of dumb, uh, but they literally are living in 1800 and they're totally independent of, uh, the, uh, government bureaucracy. They just don't participate. Of course, they don't make enough food to do much more than support themselves. And you can see, well, if you're only supporting yourself, you can tell the bureaucrats to go bye-bye, and you can move to the far side of the sun in the Goldilocks zone and uh, live perfectly well for the next three or 400 years. Yeah, I could see uh, bureaucracy wouldn't like that at all, but... I don't see how the bureaucrats can force you to participate. On the other hand, those people in low Earth orbit that are producing uh, key materials, the space-based solar power and so on like that, yep, the bureaucracy is going to have their fingers all over it. It's going to be a political issue. And, uh, yes, they're going to try to restrict who goes up and so on like that so they can keep control. Yeah, that's life. You have another email. Uh, listeners, okay. you, can, you can call us. One, there's still time for you to call Marshall. Oh, it well, is. I usually try to call in, but I'm already here. one <laughs> You can reach Marshall. Uh, let's see. Christy in Lubbock, Texas. Which will it be, Marshall? We know you have an adherence to space solar power, but also you know technology. So what what does the Farmer's Almanac say? Fusion, space solar power. 
<laughs> well, there's also uh, thorium, and there's also uh, plutonium. Um, which one's going to win? Ooh. Uh, I think in the long run it's space-based solar power because it's rather simple and, you know, it, it should work, and it's totally environmentally healthy. It's taking a very small amount of energy and beaming it down to where you need it on Earth. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at France, France went with nuclear reactors and pretty well built their economy on uh, nuclear. standard nuclear reactors, and uh, they've worked out quite well. Uh, we uh, went with coal, and uh, coal was considered too dirty, so we've been moving over to natural gas, and uh, I kind of think uh, ground-based uh, power uh, is going to be a toss-up between wind, solar, ground solar panels, and uh, nuclear power. Uh, which one's going to be the big winner? Ugh. I don't tend to think the wind generators are a big winner, a uh, big win, because uh, in the summertime when you have a peak power problem and it's hot and everybody wants air conditioning, uh, the wind generators don't tend to work because that's when the air is calm. Uh, solar panels, well, they work great in the daytime, but don't work at night. Maybe we can solve it with lots of lithium batteries. We don't know. The technology, we can't see into the technological future that far. Uh, we can kind of make intelligent guesses and go do research, but, uh, uh, we always have that unknown in the future. Well, Marshall, I don't recall your age. But how much of living in space will you get to see? Because I, I, I think you're in your late 60s or early 70s probably, right? Uh, let's try middle 70s. Middle, so, so I'm an old geezer. Yeah, you're so, only, uh, I think, two years older than me. Okay, okay. so uh, are, are you thinking you'll hang around to see most of this, or is the timeline going to be slower? <laughs> well, uh First part of that question is, how long do I expect to live? Well, I'm a very healthy guy, and I kind of think using the current actuary tables, I might make it to 95. So let's say i got another 20, 22 years. Will you be cognitively uh, aware, or will you be walking around on the stage trying to find out which direction to get off of it? Uh, that's a Biden joke, and I will tiptoe around that, <laughs> even if it is right. Uh, no, I've, I've kind of got a feeling my dad, my grandparents, et cetera, et cetera, were, were all very bright and very sharp people, even to the very end. So I kind of figure I'll be the same way. Now, the second part is, what do I think will actually get done in the next 20 years? I definitely think we are going to have uh low earth orbit biospheres and pretty well have it uh worked out you know maybe 20 or 30 biospheres 
you know, with different variations and so on, I think we will probably solve that. And there probably be, um, oh, let's say 5,000 people living in space. Uh, I think that'll happen in my lifetime. Now, them moving off into deep space, uh, like the L5 Society you're talking about, and millions of people living in space, yeah. I don't think that's going to happen in the next 40 years, which uh, is beyond my lifetime. Okay. Um, uh, if you ha- uh, Hopefully you have a similar opinion, because I want you to be doing the space show for another 20 years. Well, my my family's cognitive capabilities are different from yours. So uh, my dad made it to 94, but the last five or six years, uh, he, he probably absolutely had dementia. Mom made it almost to 100, but when she was 94, and she was still going shopping and and doing things on her own, so she she was together, but she had a massive stroke that took her back to being about five years old. So, so that's a little bit of a of a different way you go with cognitive. Uh, without yeah. giving too much, I've got some first cousins and a brother that are very very close to. And uh, they do. Uh, let 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 me put it this way: um, that they're not on the track that even my dad was when he died at 94. So mm-hmm. whether this is genetically passed on or not, I will say this: I do think that doing things like the space show and talking to people like you and like physicists and economists and really bright listeners and things, it, it does keep you really sharp. And if you kind of just quit and and become a couch potato or, you know, watch sports or you, you, you don't read challenging books that I read so that I can interview people on the space show, I, I think you have a tendency, not you specifically, but people have a tendency to decline and decline faster. So I, I think the space show is probably the best medical prescription to stay sharp that any of the people in their upper years that may be space show listeners, this this is therapeutic and medicine, not not just for space. It will keep you on your toes if if you keep talking about how things like space solar power works and fusion and this and that and the other because you you, you won't have a chance to become lethargic and sort of a fat-ass couch potato. So um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm coming up on 78 in June. Uh, I, you know, 20 years, that would put me close to 100. So I, I, I just don't know. But I don't, also don't know what my interest would be in, in sticking with the space show, you know, till I'm 100 years old. I, I yeah, well... Hopefully, long before that, we'll find somebody to uh, co-host the program with you. Uh, maybe. Um, nobody's nobody's uh, sending in a in a resume, and and I haven't put out any any specific uh, criteria to to do that. And uh, uh, I guess if I had one big goal to do with the space show before I, I chuck it in, or it chucks me in. I, I would love to do an off-Earth space show program. So it's, it's unlikely 
that I'm going to be the guy off earth. But I, but maybe one of my listeners will be the off earth guy or off earth gal and will either be orbiting as a tourist or will be on one of these private space stations or will be on a mission to Mars with like, with Elon Musk and, and we can do a, a space show in route or when you get there or something. I, I would really like to, to move the space show to at least have a, a, some sort of presence off Earth. I think yeah. that, that would be really a, a great completion to mm-hmm. the space show too. Hey, we, we started out here and we, we, can, we can now go do this off Earth. Yeah. And, and it's um, got to be live off Earth. I'm not talking about a pre recorded podcast, spatial format all the way, live mm-hmm. broadcast off Earth. Uh, I, one of the things that really hooked me on the space show and still does is the quality of people you interview and the quality of views. And sometimes even people who you don't think uh, have a, a real angle on space toss in something and you start thinking about it and you kind of go, oh, wait a minute, that's a facet that I hadn't thought of before. The example being the Polish lady that you had on that talked about space art and... Uh, my, oh, yes, uh, I remember her not too long ago. Yeah, and the key point she brought out was under communism, uh, they basically told everybody what to do, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, the artists are artists, and they've got to go do their thing and their view of art. And the communists basically would punish people if they got too far out of line, which basically reflects back to the engineers. They can see what the bureaucrats do to the artists, so they know that getting out of line will cost them a lot, and therefore innovation in engineering gets suppressed also. And I found that to be extremely interesting. It's part of getting out into space. We are going to be pressing our the limits, and in pressing the limits, engineering is going to uh, progress, and we're going to find new ways of doing things. It's the challenge of engineering that is most important, and it's one of the big points of the space show. Zuberman, Zuberman, Zimmerman, uh, 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 there's slot AJ, uh, come in and bring in new concepts, new topics. You cover subatomic fusion, uh, thorium reactors. That kind of general, wide ranging view is what makes the space show important. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe you'll be my first, uh, Live off off Earth uh, broadcast somehow. I, I, well, quote unquote, if uh, Starship gets uh, how do I say this? If Starship gets it down to uh, five hundred dollars a pound to get into space, uh, she uh, 
160 permanent videos. Yeah, might be $80,000 to get my ass in space. Uh, I'd have to get my wife's permission, but yes, I pay it. Marshall, before you leave, what uh, is the status of your airplane? Well, uh, I got uh, into the air and was flying and uh, came in and did a hard landing. I broke my uh, nose gear. Oh, God. So I'm per- currently sitting around waiting on parts. Did you ever get through the FAA and the permits? Oh, yeah. So it's it's licensed now as an experimental airplane? Oh, yeah. In fact, I got experimental written across the side in two-inch letters. Can you fly a passenger in it? Oh, yeah. It's a two-seater. So are you were you still planning to fly it out to Vegas someday? Well, uh, I'm still learning how to fly this airplane, and uh, you might understand some of the physics of this. Uh, I think you said that you flew a Cessna 150 and so on. That's about a 1,300-pound yeah. airplane. Uh-huh. And, and uh, yeah, and it's very easy to fly, et cetera, et cetera. Well, easy. one of the things I've done is I've flown a lot of ultralights. One of the first things you learn about ultralights is if there's a gust of wind, you can suddenly find yourself you know, an extra 30 feet in the air than you intended because uh, the airspeed jumps up, producing more lift, and you, you know, fly up. And you can also have the opposite effect. You're coming in there and you think the wind's nice and steady. You're about to set down, and all of a sudden the wind dies, and uh, you're uh, about to touch down, and you can do hard landings in ultralights. That's nothing unusual. You just fix them and go to it. Well, I'm kind of halfway in between, and I have that problem also. So, uh, yeah, I I think basically I have a problem of figuring out whether it's bad airplane design, since I'm responsible for the airplane design. Well, that's me. Uh, maybe the pilot had uh, an error and uh, bad weather. Well, all three of them together can make for hard landings. And, uh, well, I did a hard landing. I bruised my ego. I bruised my confidence. And it's going to bruise my billfold. <laughs> you have a late caller wanting to talk to you. Good, good, okay. a- good afternoon, caller. Welcome to uh, the Marshall on Space Show. And uh, who are you and where are you, please? Uh, this is John of Fort Worth. Hi, John. Yeah, I thought I should call in there. I use I, I he calls in more regularly than I do, but I think he he, he wins that. But I do call in quite a bit, so I should join this he, one too a little. Yeah, bit. but he but he's the most. <laughs> hey, pro- I, I tossed in the UFO thing just for you. Yeah, well, I know I I didn't want to, but I would like to point out on that that's kind of topic. I wanted to mention the fact that if, like three hundred sightings of Nessie uh, doesn't really compare with the UFO sighting list. That you know, I mean, there's. Over 700, you know, the U Blue Book had 700 unexplained cases after all the attempts they had to debunk them all. So, I mean, just that's that's from years ago. You know? Okay, John, I wasn't going to do this, but I got to tell you a story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have to be careful what I say, mm-hmm. but I so I'm going to talk in generalities. All right. 
some of my, the people I know that are that are really close know that I signed up to take the Las Vegas Metro Police Department um, civilian police class, the citizen mm-hmm. police class. So it's a really incredible 12-week course. And yesterday was my 10-hour ride-along with, and I, I'm not going to say with who or what command or anything because I don't want to point to any direction to any one individual, uh, with the officer who was going to take me with him on all of his calls, and, and I do mean literally all of his calls. Uh, so I, I cannot participate in the calls, but I'm right there at the scene unless he ascertains there might be gunfire or shooting, and then I'm in a protected zone. Okay, so um, we're riding around in, in the cop car, and he um, he's asked me what I'm doing, so I tell him about the space show, and he says, "You believe in aliens?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, yeah, I do, but uh, and I love the topic, but I don't cover them on the space show, and uh, and I." Don't, I can't tell you there's any real proof on him. He says, "What do you think of that alien story in Las Vegas a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago?" So, for those that you don't know, maybe Fort Worth John remembers it. There was some kind of an orb light that sh- shot into somebody in East Las Vegas in their yard, and then that guy for two weeks started reporting seeing an eight-foot alien giant. You remember the story, John? Oh, yeah, I remember it. Okay. And there were videos of the orb and videos of that. So the cops took it seriously. He was one of the cops that was involved in that. They put cameras up on the guy's house. They put cameras all over the place to try to see it. And and they they really made an effort to find out if something did come down with that orb. And you can... You could probably still go on Google and see the light crashing in or near this guy's yard in Vegas. And then then he says, I have to tell you that the night this happened, eight or nine, well, maybe it was seven or eight, I can't remember the number, black government SUVs swarmed this guy's property. Mm. And... And uh, it was not reported, but we were there. Metro Police was there, and uh, there were people there uh, doing all sorts of things. Doing all sorts of things uh, that we have no clue what the hell they were doing. And he said it. And we're thinking, you know, if there's nothing there, if this is just BS, what the hell? Are these government agency unidentified black U.S. black um, SUVs? They all have federal license plates, so that's why mm-hmm. they know they're government. Why are they there in mass at this guy's place? And he said, "We never got answers. We never got questions. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, but we watched it happen, and we were there, and we were securing the neighborhood." And, and the property. So, John, what does that tell you? 
And now, is he shining me on? I I don't know the answer to that. It is a great cop. We had a, a terrific ten hours in the car together. We went to a lot of different calls, uh, a dope house, this house, that. I mean, we we really it was it was fun. It was educational. It was informative, and uh, and I loved every minute of it. And the guy was terrific. And uh, he had integrity. I watched the way he de- did domestic violence. You know, I was right up there listening to him and how he calmed people down and did things. First class officer. So now you you tell me uh, what what's what are eight or nine or seven government black SUVs doing at this guy's house who's claiming there's an eight foot alien in his yard that came out of this crashed spaceship or blight thing where there is actually newsreel footage of the light coming in and crashing. Well, I mean, I, I, I would I have no reason to believe the police officers lying about what ha- what happened. I mean, as far as the uh, government vehicles, he can identify license plates. And I, no, I think that, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of my main arguments for the thing being real. I think there are people in the government that do have a lot more knowledge about it than we have. You know, and I, I'm looking at the way the government behaves toward the subject, and to me they're behaving like it's real. I mean, if they don't behave that way, I mean, well, like the Sasquatch or to the or Nessie, the, the British government isn't trying to, you know, inter- do different weird things about Nessie. It's, uh, it's like you say, it's more of a tourist attraction or something. But here, they they take it, you know, pilots that claim they see it, and the military often get a rather bad debrief from the intelligence people afterwards. I mean, it may be a little bit milder now since the recent changes in rules, but, I mean, it's, you know, they behave like there's something there. They don't behave like it's a nothing. That's my point. Listeners, you can you can find if you have a ton of news and and video about this here. Let me let me see if I can. Uh, it's all over. You can, what you want to? I'll tell you what you want to Google. Okay, uh, aliens in Vegas. Family claims to see non-human beings. UFO mystery in Las Vegas. Watch police respond to report of ten-foot creature. This was all in the neighborhood of approximately June of 2023. And you can see the the thing coming in and and sort of crashing. You know, it was a green kind of orbing light thing, right? I mean, it it was. Now, there was never any report that the lights on the house or anything ever showed anything. But the the guys passed lie detector tests, if I recall, you know, the homeowner and, and all of this. And I have no, I, I have no doubt that the officer was shooting me straight skinnies, and and said, yeah. "Look, this place was surrounded by feds, and uh, we don't know what they did. All, all we did was maintain perimeter, and uh, you don't do that if if somebody's having a marijuana trip or a, <laughs> or an acid trip, right? You just don't well, respond that way." Well, that, well, that's a very interesting thing that, that that was something, like I said, that didn't come out publicly. Uh, I wonder if the, the people themselves, have they, did they actually have contact with these federal officials? And No, what no word. No, they've never spoken about it, but they did do two lie detector tests, mm-hmm. and, they, and they were interviewed. They had to quit publishing the address because so many people kept coming there 
with their own mm-hmm. cameras and climbing over the property trying to find the alien and all this kind of stuff. But something happened. The feds were there. You can see the the, the news foot footage has it coming in on the sky and crashing. Yeah. Um, so I I was gonna. I figured you'd call in on an open line show, and I'd, I'd blow this on you rather than on Marshall's show. But uh, I was all I could say is I, I don't believe there's an eight foot alien roaming around Las Vegas. But you know, well, maybe someone knows something that I know, and maybe eight foot is an exaggeration. But you can when you see that light coming in and crashing, mm-hmm. you know that's not a dummy. Set up deal. Well, there wasn't any, wasn't any debris left or anything like that, though. I mean, I don't have any information. From, I'd have to go back and read some of the stories and see. As far as I, I, I didn't get the perception there was. I mean, you know, here it says. I mean, here's here's one of them from Reuters. Uh, video showing an alien. God damn all these advertisements. Uh, that, that keep popping up on Google. Video showing an alien in Las Vegas mixes CGI video and news report audio. So they, the, Reuters is claiming a fact check and, uh, you know, that it's been manufactured. But So you can find a little bit of everything on this story. I'm just telling you what I was told yesterday, out of the clear blue, and uh, I, I take it for what it's worth. I don't know. Well, I mean, it is, it's probably because it got such publicity triggered this government response, I suspect. I mean, you know, and but if it was a less popularized thing and it didn't, wasn't at a sensitive site, I wouldn't think they would respond as much to that. But, you know, but since it was in the news all over the place, I guess that kind of triggered somebody, huh? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's on the foolish side because the guy saying that, you know, maybe it's hiding in the bushes. And so I remember statements like that. But the, they never supposedly found it. But may, maybe the feds found something and and took it back with them. I don't know. But it just struck me when when the the officer told me that and said that they were working perimeter and this is what they saw. And okay, and they're trained observers, you know, much yeah. more than the than the normal Joe and and Kathy on the street. Anyway, uh, listeners, again, it's around June, early June of 2023, and you can find it easily, Las Vegas yeah. Alien or whatever, and read the stories. But you won't find that there are all these government SUVs launching on the house. You're not gonna, you're not gonna find that part of the story. And uh, I had no impression, and I've had no impression since I've been in this class for nine weeks. About three, three weeks left of it, that the officers no matter what division of the police department they're in, have been anything other than impeccable straight shooters with the class. I mean, it's a fabulous yeah. class. So take it for what it's worth. Marshall, I, I don't know what to tell you, but, you know, maybe maybe the, the farm will be the next place to visit. Who knows? Well, there, there are unusual things that nobody has explanations for, and I like to use crop circles. I was you just going to say that, yeah. yeah. And uh, every once in a while they catch somebody actually trying to make a crop circle. And, uh, you know, uh, they basically charge them with uh, trespassing and, you know, destroying uh, property and 
there's a few in some states it's uh, a felony to destroy somebody's crop on purpose uh et cetera et cetera well hmm and uh there's lots of things uh even John would uh, know this that if you uh crank up radars uh, amplify them uh way past where they're supposed to work uh you're going to see all sorts of crazy stuff and you can't you can't really say what's there what isn't because electronics has noise in it that uh, can produce unusual things and it's almost impossible to backtrack them well and, and well, you've also got the animals that are mutilated and nobody knows how that happens either so uh yeah uh and then there's all sorts of people that claim to have had close encounters. Uh, of course, I personally think that uh, most of them were drunk at the time, so, <laughs> you know, really have to take that with two pounds of salt, um, which leaves very few real mysteries out. And uh, if you have a national database, yeah, there's probably two, three, four hundred uh, total unknowns that you have really good data on, but, you know, they still end up being unsolvable. We don't know what they are. That maybe, doesn't maybe, mean maybe that annu- space maybe aliens. Annually. It means we don't know. <laughs> John, did you have anything else for Marshall? Otherwise, I'm going to bring the, the show to a close as we're moving forward. Uh, uh, let's, uh, let's just wrap it up for now. It's a very good show. Marshall had a good show there. Thank you very much, John. appreciate it very much. And, Marshall, keep calling. We'll look for your calls on space show programs coming up. And uh, hang in there with us. We appreciate your company. Yeah, well, I appreciate your company and constantly uh, challenging my thought processes. Thank you. So until next time, my friend. Until next time. And, listeners, we stream this show without a glitch. I I haven't heard the quality of the audio, but it looks like we'll – be uh, back to business on the on the space show, and uh, ho- hopefully uh, nobody else will want to take down the space show site, and uh, we won't have this problem again for a long, long time or forever. And again, to all of you who uh, called me, emailed me, donated, helped, and were really supportive, I really want to thank you, uh, uh, and uh, you made a difference, and I appreciate that very much. Bob Zimmerman tomorrow night, Bob Zubrin Tuesday night, uh, Anatoly Zak on Hotel Mars Wednesday, Melody Yashar on Friday, Living in Space Habitats again, and this amazing high school girl that you really want to hear on Sunday. Everybody have a great week. Keep looking up, and um, we'll look forward to uh, more programming with you. And we thank Marshall. So. Good night from Marshall, good night from David, all of you who called, all of you who emailed. The weekend has still got a little left in it, so enjoy it, and have a great, safe, and healthy upcoming week. Once again, goodbye from Marshall, David, and the Space Show.